And our second gospel reading, our sermon text, is from John chapter 18, verses 33 to 38, and then chapter 19, verses 1 to 16, and that's on page 588. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king opposes Caesar. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. I read that twice. Uh, So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a palace called the Stone of Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to keep going today and look at um, the trial of Jesus. And what we're looking at particularly is Pilate's encounter, uh, his, his encounter with, with Christ around this question, are you the king of the Jews? And that question frames the whole text that we read, and it's a very appropriate question for us today on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, as you've probably gathered by now and may remember, is the Sunday when the church traditionally reflects on this moment when Jesus first arrives in Jerusalem, 
where people are shouting praises to him. They're saying, Hosanna. They're celebrating him. They're laying down their coats in the road for him. And this text only takes place a few days later. It may seem worlds apart, but it's not. It's just a few days apart. But the crowd's chanting has decidedly changed. Now people are demanding that Jesus be put to death. And so to understand this, to get our minds around how such a a drastic change can take place in such a short period of time, we really don't need to look much further than the two men in this passage. We see here, as we're looking at at Jesus on one hand and Pilate on the other, uh, a representation of the tension in every one of our lives. The tension that we face when we encounter Christ's claims of kingship. The tension, really, between our kingdom and his kingdom. So today, what I want us to do is to look at these different points of view, look at this contrast that John is trying to set up between these two people, and see three things. One, I want us to see the lie that's behind Pilate's kingdom. And then secondly, I want us to see the truth that Christ's kingdom stands on. And finally, I want us just to ask the very practical question, what does it mean to have Christ as king. So the lie of Pilate's kingdom, the truth of Christ's kingdom, and then finally, what does it mean to see Christ as our king? Okay, so Pilate. Uh, It's clear uh, as we read this story, if you were able to track as Chad was going through it, as Pilate is, is facing Jesus and hearing the case against him, Pilate's not convinced. You can tell. Pilate isn't very convinced that that, there's, that Jesus has done anything worthy of the death penalty. In fact, he repeatedly declares, I find no guilt in this man. He even goes so far as making an, giving the crowd the option to free someone else instead of Jesus. That's how Pilate is viewing the situation, but there's a drastic turn in verse 12 of uh, chapter 19. There's this moment where it says, Pilate's seeking to release him. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat him on the judgment seat. That moment, when the the crowd cries out, If you do this, you're not Caesar's friend. It seems to change everything. The the proceedings change. Uh, Pilate's actions change. So what's going on? Well, before we can answer that, first you need to know some things about Pilate, okay? Pilate, let's just say, is not a sympathetic character in history. Pilate is, uh, historically, there's lots of stuff written about him, actually. Not just in the Bible, but there's extra-biblical sources that tell us about what kind of leader he was. And we know from those things that he was a terrible leader. That he was the kind of person who intentionally antagonized his subjects. Philo, a Jewish historian, he said that he was a man with a very inflexible disposition who was merciless as well as very obstinate. It said that... uh, During this time, Pilate's job, he had complete political authority over Judea. But the way he enforced that authority was ruthless. There's accounts of times when he outright slaughtered 
the Jewish people. There's stories where he took funds from the temple and used them to pay for public works. He, there's even an account where he took these idolatrous images of the emperor and he brought them within the city walls of Jerusalem, which was something no other leader had ever dared to do. And the way the city interpreted it, and they were probably right, was he just did it out of contempt. He just did it to prove a point. Pilate, you know, he, he ruled with uh, the wisdom and compassion of, of uh, like King Joffrey from Game of Thrones, right? He was, he was just out there to, to needle people. And some of this stuff, actually, had already gotten him in trouble. Um, years after this, in fact, Pilate gets removed from his, his position because of this kind of cruelty. The emperor puts him in check and removes him from office. So when Jesus comes before Pilate in our scene today, there is a sense that that dynamic is, is already occurring, that, Jesus, that Pilate is antagonizing the crowd a little bit. If you think about the process for getting Jesus there, Pilate had to release those troops. Do you remember a couple weeks ago the troops came and arrested Jesus? Pilate gave them that troops. Pilate was kind of allowing them to go through this process. But then when, when they finally do all the effort, do all the work, and get Jesus in front of Pilate, he says, deal with this yourself. Come on, guys. What do you want from me? As the story unfolds, it becomes pretty clear, Pilate has no intention of doing what they want him to do. He doesn't want to comply with their demands. And then, as he starts to question Jesus, things get a little strange, right? It says, he starts to, to really wonder who this guy Jesus might be. When he tells him, go ahead, take him yourself, you deal with it, do it on your own, the Jews say, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he made himself a son of God. And verse 8 says, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So there's this weird line in the middle of this whole story that says, Pilate started to suspect that maybe Jesus was something more. Maybe there was something more going on here. But he only considers it for all of, I don't know, two, three verses before it changes again. As soon as that charge comes out, if you do this, you're not Caesar's friend. He abandons any consideration. As soon as that line is laid out by the crowds, there, there's no more chance for Jesus. He immediately puts Jesus in the place of judgment. And I think this is a great illustration of the kingdom of man. Right? Pilate is this powerful guy. He is in charge. Everyone has to bow down to his authority. He has the, he has the power over life and death, even. He's the one who makes the final call of capital punishment. And yet, even though he has all this authority, his kingdom is so fragile that it can be taken down by one bad report, by, by this crowd just one time sending a letter to the emperor. So Pilate, he rules in pomp and pride. But behind that is fear and insecurity. And so here, when his power starts to get threatened, he responds by doing whatever it takes. When he thinks he might lose his control, he does whatever it takes for him to hold on to that power. Pilate's in control of the kingdom, but you come to see pretty quickly that really, the kingdom kind of controls him. 
These crowds kind of control what he does. And now Pilate, he's one of the most notorious bad guys in history, right? We don't have a lot of kids named Pilate these days, do we, right? It's, it's in there with, with Adolf and Judas. Like, there's no, there's no little Pilates running around. Um, he's a bad dude. It's kind of hard to relate to this guy. But the truth is, we all have these kind of kingdoms that we rule. We all have these areas of our lives where we act like we're in control. The political lines aren't as well marked, right? The geographical lines aren't as clear as Pilate's. But just like him, we have these, these kingdoms and our fears quickly expose where they are. Let me just give you an example from my own life. You know, it's, I've thought about whether I want to tell you this one or not, but I'm going to, so here it comes. The church, for me, is a place that I can easily start to think of as my kingdom. It's a place where I can easily believe that because I'm the pastor, because I'm the church planter, everything that happens here is somehow related to the effort I'm putting forward, our, our failures, our successes. Now, theologically, I don't believe that, right? I, I don't think that that's true theologically, but practically speaking, I feel that way. And my fears are what proves it. A few weeks ago, I was talking to someone, and they, they let me know that another church planter was moving into town to plant another church. <laughs> and my, my instant response was fear, right? I wasn't, all oh, right, great, you know, we're going to reach this neighborhood for Jesus, which is the whole point of my life, right? <laughs> my instant response was, oh, no. What happens? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to us? Well, I've got to do something about this. And so immediately I'm on the phone, you know, I'm on the internet, like thinking about advertising campaigns. I'm in the streets trying to meet people because this is my kingdom. That's my first response. But then what inevitably comes after that is this anxiety, right? This stress, this realization that I really am not in control of this. I, I can't really, none of that stuff is, is going to work out necessarily. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious, I'm stressed, I'm, I'm losing sleep, and really I'm living like a slave to this work that I'm doing. I'm fighting against how powerless I really am. And that's the tension that always comes up with these kingdoms that we build. We might imagine that we have some power, but at the end of the day, it's really those kingdoms that have the power over us. So what about you? What is it for you? What is that place that you imagine you control? Maybe it's your kids, right? Maybe you have big plans for them. But you can't protect them from the world. What are you going to do? You, what if they start dating someone that you don't like? <laughs> Maybe it's something simple. Maybe your kingdom is something as simple as your health. You work out every day. You eat right. You're convinced, you know, we're in the generation science is progressing. We're going to live till we're 150, right? <laughs> but what are you going to do when, when sickness and, and age start to catch up with you? How do you respond when you realize that you aren't even in control of your own body? Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your job. Maybe... Maybe it's your, your money. Maybe it's your plans for your future. Where is that place where you are, are living with such a tight grip 
with such control? Where's that place where you think that you are the final authority? We live as if we're in control of these things, but the truth is the opposite. We act like we are the sovereigns over our lives. We rule without giving any thought to God or what he might want. But reality always exposes our weakness. Reality always exposes our weakness. That's the lie that's behind Pilate's kingdom. He's the ruler. But the crowd is preying on his fear of Caesar. And as they threaten his control, he's willing to do whatever it takes to assert himself. He's even willing to sacrifice this man who he believes is innocent. So here we have this picture of Pilate sitting in this seat of power, but being pulled like a puppet, being manipulated by the crowd. We see this man with all this power, but really he is the weakest man in the world. That's the lie behind Pilate's kingdom. But let's look at the truth of Jesus' kingdom. So, it's kind of a stunning contrast to move our focus off Pilate and then turn it on to Jesus. Verse 33, it tells us in chapter 18, Pilate starts to question Jesus at the beginning of our text, and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over. But my kingdom is not of this world. So when Pilate asks Jesus if he's a king, notice he doesn't deny it. That's important. Jesus doesn't say no. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He's trying to tell him, I am a king, but my kingdom isn't like yours. My kingdom is not like Caesar's kingdom. There's a major difference. And the main difference he lays out just a few lines later. He says, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus says his purpose, his kingdom, he's here to bear witness to the truth, and everyone in his kingdom listens to him. I wonder if Pilate, how he felt about that line. Jesus says to him, as he's standing surrounded by this nation of people who hate him, by this angry crowd who is actively working against him, for Jesus to say, everyone in my kingdom listens to me. Jesus, right here, he's claiming a complete, uncontested authority over this spiritual realm. And what is it that defines that kingdom? What defines Jesus' kingdom? It's not political boundaries. It's not a military force. He says, my kingdom is defined by truth. I have come to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to me. Jesus is the, the ruler of this kingdom of truth, and Pilate famously responds, what is truth? For that, at least that one line, Pilate could, could be living here, right? Pilate could be living in, in Boston, 21st century 
Because that is a question that we, we're all asking, right? Jesus here, he's saying, there is truth. He says, I am here to bear witness to the truth. But we live in a world where truth is kind of this amorphous idea, right? Truth is something that changes from person to person. It's really common, in fact, to hear, well, it's fine for you to believe that. But what's true for you may not necessarily be true for me. There's this idea that that truth is relative. It's relative to the person. It's relative to the circumstance. But if you try to live that way for a second, if you try to live like there is no truth, if you try to live as if truth is relative, it pretty quickly breaks down. In fact, it breaks down as soon as you come up to anything that's moral and true. I mean, just take, for instance, uh, slavery, right? Is slavery right or wrong? Well, historically, right, slavery was was legal in our country. One of the most brutal and horrific forms of slavery the world has ever seen was legal, and our country was, was pretty much built upon it. Now, slavery is, is loathed and, and, and condemned. So let me ask, which is it? Is slavery right or wrong? Well, if the truth is relative, then, then what you got to say is, well, society has changed. So Slavery might be wrong now, but back then it was okay, because people thought differently. But we can't really say that, right? We can't really think that way. Because if there is truth, if there actually is truth, like Jesus says, well, then we can stand up and we can say, no, slavery was wrong then. Slavery is absolutely and objectively and actually wrong. It's wrong. It's destructive, it's dehumanizing, it is now, and it was back then. But the people back then were wrong. That's the difference. But truth is true. It's not relative. It doesn't change. I think reason alone tells us that. And I think our hearts tell us that too. And so when Jesus comes and he says, Jesus says his kingdom stands upon truth. His kingdom is about the truth. Well, what's the truth? What was the truth of Jesus' kingdom? Well, the very basic truth is this. There is a God who rules creation. There is a God who rules creation. And the reason why we can do things like tell the difference between right and wrong is because this God has created the world. He has written his law on our hearts. That's the reason why basic stuff like murder and theft and adultery and dishonesty, that's why whether you're a Christian or a not, people around the world look at those things and they say those things are wrong because his law is written on our hearts. This world is created by a good God. That's what what Jesus' truth claim was. And then the other claim of, of Scripture, the other claim of Jesus is that our purpose on this earth. The point of life, the purpose of life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So that's the first part. There's a God and and we're meant to enjoy Him forever. We're meant to know Him. 
But the other thing Jesus says is, we've all been separated from him. We've been separated from him by sin. And not just by our failure to do good things, you know, not just because we've done some bad things. But the real failure is that we don't live in subjection to God. We don't live as if God is God. In other words, instead of worshiping him, we live as if we're the final word. As if our kingdom, those little kingdoms that we've built, are all that matters. That that's the whole sum of the universe. Jesus is standing upon truth, and what he's saying to us today is that the lies of this world, the lies of our little kingdoms, have taken us captive. The lies of our little realms have enslaved us. But Jesus is the king who comes to set the captives free. In chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, he says, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. The truth is that Christ is king, not us. And the knowledge of that truth is what's going to ultimately set you free from your fears and from the anxieties of this life. And that freedom is, is rarely more evident than it is right here in this passage. The freedom that Christ gives, uh, there is just an amazing and powerful picture of it in this text. Do you see it? Here is Pilate. And he is at the mercy of this crowd. People are, are screaming at him. They're, they're, they're demanding of him. And Pilate is, is lashing out. Right? Even in this moment, it says he looks right to Jesus and he says, Don't you know that I have the authority to crucify you? Pilate is, is showing the authority that he has. But Christ responds calmly. And he says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Imagine it. Imagine these crowds shouting and raging and demanding. Imagine Pilate handing him over to these people to be crucified. And here is Jesus standing quietly, calmly. And he's beaten. And he's, he's bruised. He's mocked. And yet, he's confident. And he's composed. Scriptures tell us his face was set like flint. He is determined to, to accomplish the purpose he's set out for. And so here's Jesus sitting in this place of weakness and humiliation. But he's the most powerful man who's ever walked the face of the earth. So we, we've seen the lie that stands behind Pilate's kingdom. And we've heard the truth that Jesus reigns. But what does that mean for us? What does it mean for Christ to be a king? What does it mean for Christ to be our king? That's, right, that's our church name, Christ the King. <laughs> I found out over the years that that name is offensive to people. had a, quite a few conversations where people are offended that our church is called Christ the King, and I understand that, right? People say, 
I don't need a king. Maybe they've come from a country where there's a miserable king. Maybe their ancestors have come from a place where they're, they're being oppressed. But they say, I'm my own master, and that's all I need. But what I hope is clear from seeing these contrasting people today, what I hope is clear from seeing these contrasting kingdoms today, there's really no such thing as being your own master. Either you can try to live like a king on your own, you can try to be like Pilate, you can feign control, you can, you can live in denial that of the fact that you, just like every single person before, really don't have any ultimate control of your life, over your health, not even over people around you. But you can try to live like a king. You can try to carry on and, and try to control things and live like a lord over them. But really, just like Pilate, you will be controlled by them. And those things are going to, to rob you of your joy and rob you of your life. You can act like a king, but you're going to live enslaved. Or, you can come to the one true king. You can come to the king who calls himself the king of truth. The one whose rule couldn't be any more different than the way we rule. The one whose authority couldn't look any more different than the authority of this world. How does Jesus rule? How does Jesus rule as a king? In our church, we have this uh, document. It's the Westminster Confession, and it has some questions. It tries to teach you what does the Bible basically say. It tries to teach us some theology. And here's what it says. It says that Christ as a king, here's what he does. He, he acts as a king by subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of our enemies. He says, Jesus conquers his people. That's one of the things that he does as a king. But note, he doesn't do it the way Pilate does it. Jesus doesn't conquer his people by, by slaughtering them and treating them like enemies. Instead, here he is. This is how he conquers. Isaiah says, like a, a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He doesn't even open his mouth. Rather than rising up against his enemies, he lays down his life for them. Rather than punishing all of us for our rebellion, it says he took the punishment for us. That on the cross, he goes to bear the sins of the crowd that's demanding his death and of us. Every person in history that would reject his lordship. And so this week, this Holy Week, as we are having some extra services and reflecting on this fact, I don't want you to get too caught up in that, that false picture of the, the fair-skinned Jesus at the mercy of the crowd. But I want you instead to look to the King of glory, who by his death is conquering sin once and for all. I want you to look at this king, who in this very moment when it looked like everything was lost, was in the process of bringing salvation to the whole world. Look at this king who rules through surrender, who conquers through defeat. 
Look to the king who came to die for his enemies so that they could be welcomed into the kingdom as sons and daughters. And don't just look at the king. As you're thinking about that this week, look at the kingdom. Because his kingdom is not like your kingdom. His kingdom is not like Pilate's kingdom. It's not this temporary, unstable thing that's waiting to be taken away by time. Christ says his kingdom is not of this world. It's imperishable. It's undefiled and unfading. That's what scripture tells us. And because of that, there's no anxiety in Jesus, right? Even as it seems like the whole world is falling apart, even as it seems like everyone has turned against him, there's no fear that he's going to lose it. And so I, I want to close here with, with two quick applications. If you're like me, maybe that's all you need to hear today. If you're a Christian, if you look to Jesus as your Lord, maybe you're in a place right now where you do feel like everything's crumbling. Maybe you're, you feel like everything's falling apart. Maybe you are full of fear and anxiety about your future, about your family, about your job, whatever it is. Maybe you just need to be reminded that Jesus is the king and not you. Maybe you need to hear Jesus say, my kingdom is not of this world. You need to hear that truth and let it set you free. John Calvin when he read this verse, he said, any Christian, when he hears that, any Christian, when she hears, my kingdom is not of this world, should be filled with the hope of a better life. One that is protected and promised to us by Christ's hand. Let the truth that Christ reigns just sink in this morning. Let it set you free. Let it set you free to stop striving. Let it set you free to rest. Let it set you free to hand over your empire of dust and to take that tiny crown off your head and cast it at his feet. But there's another message here that I think is just as important. A second thing that I have to say. If Jesus is a king, if he is the king, if he is the true king, like he says, then that means one way or another, everyone will bow. One way or another, every pretender to the throne will one day have to surrender to him. Jesus has come to give freedom to everyone who trusts in his name. But Paul also says this. He says, someday, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can rule your own kingdom. You can rule in your own authority. But one day, this tells us there's going to be no more room to pretend. There's going to be no more place to act like you're in control. One day, just like Pilate, you're going to be reminded that you're not really in charge. That none of that power really belongs to you. It's going to be taken away from every single one of us whether we like it or not. So why delay? Why wait? Why live in denial? Why not come to Jesus? Or let me put it positively. 
Let me put it this way. If Jesus is your king, if you belong to him, if you're one of his people, he will have you. If you belong to him, he will conquer your heart. If Jesus is the king, there's no way to escape. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Eventually, everyone who belongs to me listens to my voice. You might kick, and you might fight, and you might resist, and you might run, but Jesus, the king, has never lost a battle for the hearts of his people. Here's how Charles Spurgeon put it. We had it as the quote, and if there were nine people here at 1030, let me tell you how many there were at 1025. <laughs> this will be a surprise. This is a new quote to you. Um, this is what Charles Spurgeon said about this experience. He said, what a battle he had in us before we would be won. How long he laid siege to our hearts. How often he sent us terms of surrender. But we barred our gates. We fenced our walls against him. But do we not remember that glorious hour when he carried our hearts by storm? When he placed his cross against the wall and scaled our ramparts, planting on our strongholds the blood-red flag of his omnipotent mercy. Yes, we are indeed the conquered captives of his omnipotent love, and thus chosen, purchased, and subdued, we rejoice that we can never be our own, and we desire day by day to do his will and to show forth his glory. If you're here, and you're still trying to live as your own king, I just want to encourage you, open your gates. Come with me, all of us. Let's come, and let's lay down our crown, and let's come to this table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promises that you give us in your word. Lord, we thank you for the, the beautiful picture you show us here of a king who marches into battle by laying his life down for his people. Father, I know that, that Jesus' sacrifice in this story is not some abstract moment, some distant moment in history, but Lord, it was for me. Lord, I pray, God, that you would forgive us for the ways that we set ourselves up against you the way that we grapple and grab for power and try to live as if we're in control when we're not. And Lord, I pray that you would take, take my crown back. I pray for these people in this, this room that they would lay theirs down before you. And Lord, I ask for anyone in this room who, who maybe doesn't know you, who hasn't ever trusted you as their Lord, I pray, Father, today would be the day. Father, I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.